Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. As I uh, mentioned recently, before this year's Palenque Norte lectures take place at the 2014 Burning Man Festival, well, uh, I thought that it would be appropriate for me to uh, play the remaining talks that I have from the 2013 lectures. Unfortunately, a few of them didn't get recorded last year, but I do understand that a first-rate recording team has already been assembled for this year. Now, you may think that this is no big deal, uh, recording a few lectures, but if you've ever been to a burn, you know better. Uh, not, only does, <laughs> not only does the poor audio team have to cover over 40 lectures, they also have to find ways to keep their equipment from being totally destroyed by all the dust. And on top of that, there are times when uh, their own personal survival actually becomes something that, uh, well, they have to focus on when a whiteout occurs or something like that. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot to all the guys who have worked so hard to put on these lectures and get them recorded for us. So uh, let's get on with the show, uh, here in more comfort than the audience at the lectures enjoyed. The talk that I'm going to play for you right now is of a panel discussion and a Q&A session with three researchers who are currently on the front lines of psychedelic research. And we'll begin with a little surprise in that this panel was introduced by our late dear friend, Daniel Jabor, whose 2013 Palenque Norte lecture, titled Coming Out of the Psychedelic Closet, can be heard in podcast number 376. Hi, everybody. We're going to get started. Sorry for the slight delay. So my name is Daniel Jabor. I'm here to introduce the speakers to you guys and read you their bios. Most of them have pretty long ones, so... If I mispronounce anything, bear with me. Um, first, all the way to your left, is Dr. Roland Griffiths. Dr. Roland Griffiths is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. His principal research focus in both clinical and preclinical laboratories has been on, on the behavioral and subjective effects of mood-altering drugs. His research has been largely supported by grants from the National Institute on Health, and he is author of over 300 journal articles and book chapters. He has been a consultant to the National Institutes of Health and to numerous pharmaceutical companies in the development of new psychotropic drugs. He is also currently a member of the Experts Advisory Panel on Drug Dependence for the World Health Organization. He has an interest in meditation and is the lead investigator of the Psilocybin Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins, which includes studies of psilocybin, occasioned mystical experience in healthy volunteers and cancer patients, and a pilot study of psilocybin-facilitated smoking cessation. Next in the middle, we have Dr. Alicia Donforth. Dr. Alicia is a research associate at the Los Angeles Biomedical Research Institute at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Her work as a study coordinator and co-facilitator on the Dr. Charles S. Grobs clinical trial with psilocybin for existential anxiety related to the advanced cancer inspired her to become a clinical psychologist. She is currently in she currently is 
a psychology intern at a nonprofit organization that specializes in the treatment and prevention of child abuse and neglect. At the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, Alicia co-developed and co-taught the first graduate-level course on psychedelic theory, research, and clinical considerations for therapists and researchers in training. Since 2004, she has been she has volunteered as a Black Rock City Ranger and Care Services Peer Counselor at Burning Man, Boom, and other festivals and events. Her area of focus is supporting individuals who are experiencing challenging altered states of consciousness. Welcome. <laughs> and finally, all the way here on your right, is Gabriella Egan Liebes research project manager for the NYU Cancer Anxiety Psilocybin Study and clinical re recruiter for a clinical trial examining the analogistic effects of Sativex, a cannabis-derived oral spray for cancer-related pain. She is pursuing her master's in psychology at NYU with plans to pursue a degree in clinical psychology. Her research interests are in the therapeutic application of plant-based medicines. All right. So um, I think what we're going to do today is just start off with a quick research update from our panelists. And um, then we'll just go into a big Q&A so you guys get to answer lots of questions. We'll have two mics running around. So um, just capture one of them, and you can ask a question. So uh, I guess we'll go down the line. Start with you, Roland. Thank you very much. And uh, I want to thank the organizers of uh, of uh, this event uh, for the invitation. This is the first time I've been to Burning Man, and it's uh, <laughs> and as they as we say about the primary mystical experience, uh, this this holds true. I think of Burning Man. It's really ineffable. Uh, there's no good way to describe it other than uh, experience it. Um, so I'm uh, I'm scheduled to talk at six o'clock, in which at which time I'll go in more detail about some of the studies that we're doing. What I'll do now is just give a very brief overview of the lines of research that uh, we're doing, and then we're going to open it up to Q and A. And so, if there's something of particular interest, I can uh, address it now. So we initiated the uh, psilocybin research project at. Hopkins in 1999 at a time uh, where research with these compounds, at, at approved research with these compounds, uh, had really ceased for a period of decades. And I think ours was probably the first approved study by FDA in, uh, I'm guessing, about three decades that would allow administration of a significant dose of uh, serotonergic psychedelic, in this case uh, uh, psilocybin, to hallucinogen-naive volunteers. Um, and, uh, and, and so we've conducted a, um, a series of studies, uh, published um, uh, three or four major studies in healthy volunteers looking at psilocybin, characterizing the primary mystical experience and I'll go into in more detail uh, at the six o'clock talk about that and the um, persisting changes in attitudes, moods, and behavior that occurs 
after someone has such an experience. Um, we've also conducted uh, a couple of really interesting survey studies. These were just internet-based surveys in which we queried people about uh, deeply, personally meaningful experiences. That was one survey. And then another survey in which we queried people about the most difficult experience they've ever had with psilocybin, the so-called bad trip survey. And, uh, and those results are, are both really interesting and providing uh, convergent information that we can incorporate into our uh, clinical trials. Um, we, uh, along the lines of the uh, interest we have in the primary mystical experience or the transformative experience, we've just recently completed, although the data analysis is still ongoing, a major study of psilocybin in beginning meditators. And, um, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later, that we, we think that there's this convergence uh, between the domains that one can explore with meditation and the, and the kinds of insights that occur and experiences that occur with psilocybin. And so we're very interested in that intersection between meditation and psilocybin. And then we have another study that we're just about to get underway of psilocybin in long-term meditators. And that's, that's going to be really fascinating. Uh, we're looking for people there with decades of uh, regular meditation experience and going to query them about the nature of how the psilocybin experiences interact with uh, their meditation insights and their general spiritual practices. We also have in the planning stages along these same lines, a study that's going to investigate the effects of psilocybin in religious professionals, that is, uh, clergy or people who are offering uh, spiritual support or guidance uh, within the context of some kind of structured religious organization. And, and we think that's potentially very, very interesting. Um, we have... Uh, two studies that are really therapeutically based for the last um, gosh it's uh, five or six years now we've been running a trial in cancer patients who are psychologically anxious or depressed secondary to a life threatening uh, cancer diagnosis and the basic working assumption here is that the psilocybin experience can be very helpful palliatively in terms of reframing uh, the existential angst that people have uh, when confronted with life-threatening illness. And we could talk some about that. That, ex that experiment's ongoing. Uh, Gabby spoke the other day about some of the work being done, a parallel kind of investigation at NYU. The results are very, although still blinded, uh, are very encouraging anecdotally. Uh, we, we're getting the same kinds of effects that we get in, in healthy volunteers and, and the appearances that it has incredible palliative effects. Um, we also have a pilot study now running in the addictions. Uh, so we have 
a study looking at uh, psilocybin facilitation of, uh, of cigarette smoking cessation using a cognitive behavioral therapy platform. The idea being, and this, this project's being led by Matt Johnson at, at Hopkins, uh, and the idea being here that um, uh, these are potentially reorganizational experiences, transformative experiences. And the question is, how do you plug this experience in to an intent toward a very specific behavioral outcome, that is quitting smoking, in people who have failed multiple times to quit smoking and, uh, and, and have no idea how. And we have very provocative preliminary data there. And then finally, um, we have uh, a couple of other studies going at, at Hopkins, uh, not with psilocybin, but with other novel um, hallucinogen-like compounds. These aren't serotonergics, but we ran a very interesting study on dextromethorphan in, uh, in people with uh, histories of serotonergic and other hallucinogen use. And we have run uh, a study with salvia divinorum, characterizing uh, those effects. So if that's of interest, we could talk some uh, about that. Just before I close, I just want to um, emphasize I'm, I'm a figurehead at, at Hopkins. I, we have a, just a remarkably great research team there. And um, I'm one of, uh, we must have uh, almost a dozen people, um, including Bill Richards, uh, Matt Johnson, Catherine McLean, who couldn't be here today and sends her regrets, uh, Mary Casamano, Brian Richards, uh, Alberto Garcia uh, Romeo, uh, Fred uh, Barrett, Maggie Kleindienst, and uh, Bob Jesse. So there's a, a, a group of talented people who are bringing their efforts together, and uh, we feel very honored and gratified to be playing a, a role in the scientific um, documentation uh, of what's going on uh, with these very interesting compounds. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I'm Alicia Danforth, and as I'm sitting here, I'm just struck by how many faces are in the room it tells me something about how much traction this resurgence in psychedelic research has really gained since I spoke at my first Palenque Norte talk in 2007 in a, in a small yurt in a howling dust storm. So this is really nice to, to be here today with so many clean faces. Um, at that time, I was providing a, sort of a midway update on a study looking at existential anxiety near the end of life in participants who had advanced stage cancer. This trial was being conducted at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Dr. Charles Grobe was the principal investigator of that study. And we were about midway. The study was a pilot study. We were providing um, sort of a moderate dose of psilocybin to 12 individuals. Everyone in that study functioned as their own control. So everybody had an active session with psilocybin and a placebo session. Uh, the reason being, uh, with someone near the end of life, it wasn't really ethical to 
have to tell someone, sorry, nothing for you, you're in the placebo group. And because that study wasn't looking primarily at efficacy, that was the right way to go. What we were looking at was feasibility, does this model work, and is it safe primarily? Is it safe to give psilocybin-assisted therapy treatment to individuals who had uh, you know, a prognosis of maybe six months to a year to live? When I spoke here in 2007, we were still debating amongst ourselves if we would ever be able to publish in any kind of reputable peer-reviewed journal. We knew we would be able to publish in a peer-reviewed journal, but near the end of the study, we had so much confidence in the strength of the findings and the validity of this work that we wanted to give it a shot at getting the very best exposure. So kind of on a whim or... You know, we, we, we were optimistic. We submitted to the Archives of General Psychiatry, which is top of the top, um, you know, most widely cited, reputable journal. And we thought, what's the worst that could happen? They could laugh at us, or we could get some good feedback about things we needed to modify in our methodology. And uh, to our surprise, that study was published in the archives and got. <laughs> As a result, there was a lot of media exposure, and we still had some trepidation at that time. Is there going to be a backlash? Are we going to be criticized? What is the general public going to have to say about this research? And um, happy to report it was overwhelmingly positive. Um, we didn't get any scathing attacks, and it's prompted pretty robust, healthy dialogue in different communities about, you know, what is the potential of this research. Uh, fortunately, um, the work has continued at both Johns Hopkins and NYU, where they're working with larger study groups, greater N, looking closer at efficacy and doing the careful work of refining the protocols. What's the optimal dose? Um, you know, get, gathering more and more and more data to create that substantial foundation for this research going forward. So that's my sort of retrospective update. What's happening currently? We published in January of 2011 and by that time, I was well into my dissertation research. Uh, for personal reasons, I chose not to write my dissertation about using psychedelic-assisted therapy for um, existential anxiety with cancer. I had enough of that at that point, and I started thinking very deeply about other populations that might be served well by psychedelic-assisted therapy, and I was really contemplating substance, population, who is out there in the world, which groups of people are suffering unnecessarily, don't have other good interventions available to them. And I became inspired to work with adults on the autism spectrum. And as a foundational step, I wanted to do the inductive Research that I really want to make a pitch for the value of qualitative research as, a, as an essential part of the scientific method. It often gets undervalued. But as a first step, I wanted to get to know that population intimately and hear in their own words what were their experiences when they took ecstasy. And my initial intention was to sort of plant a seed 
create a bridge and create something that might be foundational for a study five or ten years down the road. Maybe someday this spark would catch and someone would take an interest in investigating this seriously. So this is a bit of an announcement. This is one of the good things about coming to Burning Man. You get to hear some inside stuff. Um, in May, we uh, received uh, approval from the FDA to conduct a pilot study um, providing MDMA-assisted therapy for 12 MDMA-naive adults on the autism spectrum. So, um, I'll be a co-investigator on that study with Dr. Grobe, and we're working on putting together the team now. Um, it's a little premature. We're not making an official announcement yet because we still have approvals from several other regulatory agencies, including the DEA, which can take a little time, and uh, the institution's uh, research board to make sure that we have green light across the board. But we hope to begin an enrollment in January for that study. Um, again, that's at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. So that's the, the status of my update presently. Um, and I think I'll leave it at that because today I'm, I'm far more inspired to hear what questions you brought, and I want to leave as much time for Q&A as possible. So thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I first have to say I'm so honored to be up here with um, my uh, my mentors, my uh, muses. Um, you know, we've it's amazing to hear um, you're going down the line. All of the of the amazing work um, that has been done, um, unimaginable work, um, but with the Real uh, verve and, and effort, and it's not easy to uh, get these these trials approved. And there's a, a lot of consciousness um, around this that is very hard to contend with. Um, so I commend my forebears for um, you know paving that path. And um, I, I echo um, what Alicia said that it's amazing to see so many so many people here and um, so many young people um, which is really really inspiring um, and and um, you know both spectrums but <laughs> old and, and and young but um, specifically the young and I think that there is um, we're all I think the reason we all come to Burning Man. Um, on some level is that we all share this um, uh, I guess this this hope that you know we may be able to change our uh, awareness of um, you know of ourselves of um, the planet and um, all these things that we are going to need to face and I think that this work is um, very much on that uh, on that vein, so I'm so honored to be um, a part of it. Um, I was introduced, yes, as a um, project manager and the project manager of the psilocybin research group um, at NYU, and we're um, 
you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience working there. We um, started in 2007. 2007, it predated when I began. Um, I been working there for about a year and a half, um, but the study itself, um, after, um, I think maybe it was before your your data was published, 2010, so it was, but you had some data. So at that point, um, Dr. Grobe and Alicia's uh, UCLA pilot study um, was, was showing prom- really promising um, you know, therapeutic effects, um, and the pilot study is really important because, you know, um, in our uh, somewhat shared intention to, to possibly see this psilocybin rescheduled, um, there is a you know a ladder that needs to be climbed. Um, so that was really important for you know paving the way um, and predicated our study. So it's Steve Ross at NYU, who's um, an addiction specialist in the Department of Psychiatry um, in Bellevue. He um, he and two other, um, one psychologist and psychiatrist there, um, got together and formed their group in 2007. It took about a year and a half, two years to get all the approvals, FDA, DEA, as you guys all know, um, but an IRB, and so they began in 2009, and um, we're close to finishing, actually. It's taken a long time. Um, our target number um, is 32, and... Um, we're we're close to there, so we're hoping um, once we finish, and it won't be for a little while. But um, you know, our intention is to, you know, after you know Johns Hopkins, we we think, and with our with our data, um, there would be powerful enough uh, significance to do a next multi-site trial, which would be um, hundreds of um, hundreds of multi-site trials. Um, but yes, for now we are on top of. In addition to the cancer study, um, we are doing a ketamine study, ketamine um, for uh, depression, actually um, acute uh, depression for uh, for individuals who present to the ER, um, very very depressed uh, or nearly suicidal, um, can be offered a ketamine um, sort of adjunct to their normal their treatment as usual in the ER. Um, and ketamine, as I think most of you know, is um, and also you know it's it's a hallucinogen, but of a different class than the serotonergic hallucinogens like LSD and um, you know, DMT and psilocybin. But um, so that's an interesting field. And ketamine is also being studied right now at Columbia University, um, which is amazing to think that another you know, powerful institution, you know, UCLA, Johns Hopkins, NYU. Um, are doing are really um, taking a very serious scientific look at these medicines or these substances. Um, and yeah, the last last thing I want to say about that, um, and then give you a little bit more updates, is that I really am honored to be um, exploring exploring um, hallucinogens, psychedelics, entheogens, whatever you want to call them, um, through the lens of science and. I um, actually wanted to point out that Roland gave me this wonderful pendant. Um, we were we were it was like at the threshold of Burning Man, um, at the entrance, and it has some psilocybin mushrooms on the on the front, on the back, and um, but on the back it has this wonderful quote. And um, 
wanted to to read it. It's a William Blake quote from one of his poems, and it says, uh, "The true method of knowledge is experiment." So, I am so honored and so so happy that um, science is taking. Um, I was going to say taking taking these is the inquiry into these or the investigation into these um, potentially very valuable um, you know psychopharmacologic but you know tools essentially to um, you know really understand how they may be of um, you know uh, of use and so you know science is really if, if it's done right, and then there it hasn't always been done right, um, but you know, it's. I think we're entering a, a really positive phase of, of, of this research. And the last thing I just want to quickly um, also inform you that we are hoping to start um, a psilocybin for alcoholism study, which would be pretty exciting because most of. Uh, a lot of the research, about 40,000 volunteers, 40,000 participants volunteered for um, studies um, with hallucinogens uh, before the Controlled Substance Act in the United States. And the largest indi- indication, um, so the, the, the most studied population um, um, for LSD was alcoholics, and there was a, a real treatment effect. In a recent um, a recent study, a recent meta-analysis that also proved, uh, you know, reviewed all of these, all the data from um, this work, and um, determined that there was likely, um, I think, something like 59. Uh, I'm not sure the actual number, but um, had treatment effects. So we're hoping to start the first ever psilocybin um, for alcoholism um, trial um, at MOU in a couple months. It's in the review review process, but. Uh, that would be very, very exciting, especially um, kind of um, combining and just comparing data um, with with Roland's work and Matt's work, Matt works, um, Matt's work at Johns Hopkins with the smoking cessation, because um, addiction seems to be quite another uh, avenue. So, um, and then one, oh, actually one last thing, and I forgot to mention this, is I'm very excited. This is one of my more exciting, uh, of all the exciting things I have going on at NYU. Um, we are initiating um, a qualitative interview study um, as a supplement to our study right now, the cancer anxiety study, in which we will interview the, um, the participants after they have um, their two dosing sessions, so both a placebo and an active psilocybin dose. And this, um, you know, this work would uh, hew to the, this is qualitative data format, um, but would basically elicit themes uh, through the kind of lived experiences of these of these uh, patients who have these really, really profound, sometimes mystical experiences, um, and make that into a, you know, a study, I mean, make that into um you know, write, you know, have, use, have qualitative data um, about these, um, the sort of phenomenon that we can't really quantify um, in science. Um, so I'm going to be a co-investigator in that project, and that's starting in a couple weeks. Um, so I think now we're ready for to open up for questions. Thank you. Before we take questions, I just have one essential point I forgot to make. It's 
probably the most important takeaway message about the autism research that I want to convey to this audience. For this particular study, we're not looking at autism from a psychopathology perspective. We're not trying to treat, cure, change, affect autism. Individuals on the spectrum, because of their difficulties processing social cues, frequently present for treatment for help with uh, social anxiety. It's very difficult to navigate in the neurotypical world when when you're unable to process nonverbal communication. So we're not trying to touch the autism. We're trying to reduce symptoms of social anxiety. Um, Just wanted to make sure that's crystal clear. And we are not in any way, shape, or form suggesting that MDMA ecstasy is appropriate for children. We are only working with individuals age 21 and older. So I want to make sure that that message gets out there in the world, and thank you. you have questions? We're going to start on this side, and then we'll alternate side to side. Um, has any research been done on the effects of psychedelics on head injuries or, post-traumatic or post-concussion syndrome? Anything like if part of the brain dies, do psychedelics help in any way? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not aware of any research. We, In the course of the research we did in healthy volunteers, we made uh, the interesting observation of uh, a post-psilocybin uh, headache in a dose-dependent fashion. And it w- it's curious because when, when we went into the literature, there wasn't any uh, clear literature documenting that. And, and uh, experimentally, it comes out just very clear. The headache is generally mild. It can be severe. It's dose-related. The duration of it relates to the dose. Onset is usually uh, post-experience. So onset starting anywhere from 6 to 10 hours after taking psilocybin. But, uh, you know, the nature of what's going on there neurologically uh, is unknown, and we certainly wouldn't interpret the results as uh, uh, indicating any kind of neurological, uh, persisting neurological impairment. Thank you. Yes, I've got a, a question here. Actually, I've got two questions. First is, Blake talked about experimentation. You three are in a great situation because as scientists you can show us where experiments have been proven. Can you tell us about the most interesting proven experiment in this area? And the second question is in the middle. For your um, study with MDMA and autistic adults, are you looking for a control group that will take MDMA that doesn't have autism? And where do we volunteer? (laughs) I cannot tell you how many volunteers attempted to enroll in our cancer study who did not have any cancer. (laughs) So we either need cancer or autism. Thank you. Yeah, I'll... I'll, uh take a stab at the first question. This will be a focus of what I'll spend more time at 6 o'clock. You know, I think the, the far and away the most interesting thing that we have documented and that a community of users has already figured out is that these kinds of experiences at their core are life transformative. And I've been working, I'm at, I've been at Hopkins for over 40 years given dozens and dozens of psychotropic drugs to uh, any number of kinds of volunteers. Uh, 
we work uh, particularly with drug users because some of our funding comes has come from National Institute on Drug Abuse. So I'm really familiar at looking at the effects of drugs acutely and querying people uh, post uh, post experience. And psilocybin is absolutely unique in in my, my our experience. But of course, we have a very unique set and setting condition here, but it's unique insofar as people will have these experiences often of mystical type, and we can talk about what that means, uh, that uh, are rated by them as being among the most personally meaningful, life transformative, spiritually significant experiences of their lives, bar none. And that ex- that memory of that experience uh, remains months and years after. And uh, you know, I've given lots of high doses of all kinds of different psychotropics to people. And if you ask them the next day or the next week or the next month, it's an experience that's just embedded in memory. Yeah, I yeah I remember. I came on the unit. I got a high dose of GHB or a sedative or a stimulant. And, I, and they'll, they'll pull from memory about what that experience was like. But there's, there's no meaning for their life going forward, except that maybe if it's alcohol, I know better than to drink that much again. Uh, but with the psilocybin experience, uh, there's this noetic quality. There's a sense that people learn something that's more true and more real than everyday waking reality. And, and that's, that's really interesting. It's really important. And, um, and that's why this research needs to go on. And we don't know how that's going to play out scientifically. You know, there are these clinical endpoints that we can shoot at, and they, that may or may not work. But just unpacking the nature of that experience and the meaning-making that goes behind it uh, is fascinating from any number of levels. Um, before we move on, I, I want to just uh, address kind of a gap on this panel here. We don't have any representatives, although there are some on play who may be speaking about the uh, MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD studies. Um, I have Burning Man brain right now, so I don't want to misquote any of the statistics, but the uh, results that they got from treating refractory PTSD with MDMA-assisted therapy uh, were, were pretty phenomenal. And even at follow-up, sometime after the sessions were conducted, uh, a very high number of the participants in that study did not meet criteria for PTSD afterwards. So I just want to um, fill in this gap in our panel briefly with the plug for that work. So I've heard of a study recently that said that SSRIs cause neuro or promote neurogenesis. Can you talk about that a little bit and maybe what the implications are for MDMA? I'm going to give you kind of a non-answer. I'm really not qualified to speak to it. To the best of my knowledge in the literature that I've read, that's an unresolved question that's still being debated. You know, the neurotoxicity debate goes back and forth. Does it cause damage? Does it cause? Does it result in? you know, neuroplasticity. That's one of the things that needs to be investigated in more detail. So that's kind of a non-answer. 
Hi, so this is a question for any of you, but um, I don't want to diminish the um, importance of qualitative research, but measurement is obviously very important to science. And could you speak to how you move from qualitative research and insights in this area into quantitative uh, research? I can give you an example from the autism research. When I began you know, investigating, um, I was, my head was filled with stereotypes. I kind of had a layperson's knowledge of autism. I had been taught that individuals on the spectrum don't experience empathy, that they have no sense of humor, that they uh, lack emotion. And, and as a result of speaking with representative members of that population in depth over a period of time and listening deeply to what they really wanted, no one told me that they wanted to get rid of their autistic self that that was integral to their identity, it was pervasive, being autistic was part of who they were, and more than one individual told me that if there, there were a cure, they wouldn't want it. If they could magically have their autism disappear, they valued the gifts that came with it while simultaneously acknowledging the disabilities. So the focus of the clinical research shifted significantly as a, of, as a result of talking with them and hearing, well, what is difficult for you? What would you want to help clinically with? Because, you know, the literature is very scant. Uh, autism in adults is grossly understudied. And um, what little is known suggests that conventional anti-anxiety you know, pharmacological interventions are ineffective, that there are differences in receptors in autistic brains. Um, it's also currently believed that conventional psychodynamic psychotherapy isn't particularly effective. So um, that became the focus, saying, I'm not hearing anybody telling me, please get rid of this autism. They're saying, please help me as an autistic person navigate in the world. And without taking that time to listen and do very rigorous applied thematic analysis to the themes that emerge from the population, I think that's the piece these days with the emphasis on cost effectiveness, expedience, let's get the answer, let's solve it, let's get that grant. Taking that longer, slower, and I'll say almost more feminine approach, that that rapport, that listening, that back and forth, that careful um, construction of that of that dialogue to really know the population that you want to serve and and hear what their true needs are, so you can steer your course when you start applying rigorous scientific method. You're sort of setting the boat out of the harbor in the right direction to avoid doing harm, to truly meet the needs of the population that you want to serve. And as I imagined, I kind of imagine the yin-yang symbol. In an ideal world, I think this model works well for psychedelic research, we would start with big qual with a little embedded quant, and gradually that proportion would reverse so that you have your big quant with your little embedded qual in there. So I'm, I advocate for finding that sort of masculine, feminine, yin-yang balance in, in science and uh, you know, really reconsidering the value of investing in qualitative research when appropriate. I just wanted to quickly, really quickly, um, I thought you said that really beautifully, um, the, uh, the real import 
of um, qualitative research, especially with this kind of work, um, because we're seeing these quantitative changes. You can measure, as we all you know, have done in our studies, we pick something that we hypothesize may change. So we're already, you know, um, kind of picking a, um, a narrow slice to sort of examine and control for all the, you know, other variables. Um, but, you know, what we're seeing in our research is this very um, reliable effect. Um, we see, you know, positive, really positive outcomes, but we're not, we're still missing... Um, sort of this understanding of the phenomenology of that experience. And um, we have, you know, some testimony, but there's still uh, there's still a lot to be, or a lot of value and a lot of, um, like, scientific value um, in, uh, you know, doing qualitative uh, investigations of, of, this, of these experiences so we can understand um, and sort of find patterns and themes that would help, as Alicia said, sort of steer... Um, steer the the research uh, I guess boats but um, so at NYU I mentioned we were doing this interview study and um, that's the the intention is to allow the patients who um, you know have these really profound mystical sometimes experiences and um, have to fill out um, pretty much multiple choice uh, multiple choice questionnaires to capture um what I've one patient last week said I saw infinity in my mind how do I you know some people have even you know, said I can't answer these questions um, because it's not their experience so um, you know and we have noticed uh, anecdotally themes so I, it, the qualitative research is something I'm really uh, passionate about uh, hi I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about uh, receiving uh, grants and things like this from such organizations as uh, NIH, uh, big organizations like that, and also say something about uh, young scientists uh, young scientists uh, kind of coming out of the closet with ta- uh, with studying uh, psychedelics and um, not being flagged for the, the science that they are doing. Um, I think this is I can, I'm going I'm to answer just briefly, and then I think um, Roland's is probably the best um, or, uh, equipped to answer. Um, it's surprising. I mean, you know, the, the three of us have, have worked or are working at, you know, are currently working at, um, you know, pretty big institutions. Um, and, you know, it's, it is avant-garde research, but it you know, nonetheless is still... Um, you know, being being done at these these you know very traditional um, you know Western kind of allopathic science medicine you know medical um, approach, and um, you know I I, I can't um, speak too much about this, but the um, Hefter organization uh, research organization which um, funds a lot of this a lot of this research um, primarily actually maps. Um, which Alicia alluded, uh, you know, mentioned, and um, all that, you know, this amazing MDMA work uh, that's being conducted um, is being um, initiated by MAPS. But um, at Hefter, you know, we're constantly receiving proposals for new studies, and so it's very, very promising. Um, you know, the um, the hurdles to to then, you know, um, bring that to fruition are still very high, but. Um, 
it's yeah encouraging. It's encouraging. I don't know if Roland wants to speak more about this. So so unfortunately, most funding. 99% of the funding has come from the private sector. Uh, so the Hefter Research uh, Institute has been funding the cancer uh, trials at NYU and at Hopkins. Uh, we've also received funding from the Council on Spiritual Practices, the Beckley Foundation, the Riverstick Foundation, Bretsy Gordon Foundation, McCormick Factory. Uh, so a number of private foundations. Um, there is just beginning to be uh, NIH-funded research in this area. And so, you know, new researchers come in or aspiring researchers come in to me all the time saying, you know, what are my prospects here? And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, what we've done is, is demonstrated that this research can be done. It can be done safely. It can be done ethically. Uh, with the approval process at Hopkins uh, and establishment of a safety database uh, connected with a safety database from Zurich. We've had a number of other institutions come online, so Harvard, UCLA, and NYU, and New Mexico now. And I think that's going to continue to grow. So I don't see that there's any impediment to someone at a major medical institution putting together a credible protocol to study these compounds. Um, how long it takes to get uh, the federal agencies willing to take the political risk, that, which is, is there and real for them, to fund this research, we, we just don't know. I mean, it could be that in a couple of years, uh, the whole situation is going to break wide open, and it could be longer than that. Hi. Um, so I guess I have two questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, like, could you all comment on the um, on the challenges um, of the approval process, specifically for psychedelic research, and like dealing with the DEA and like how frustrating that is, and whether it is frustrating. And then the second one is um, I've heard about a study that I think Timothy Leary did, like a tiny one, um, relating to Harvard Divinity students where, right, yeah, okay, yeah, so I was, like, I figured this must be something. So could you, like, comment on the D Harvard Divinity School study as it relates to Roland research? Thanks. Yes, um, let's see. So briefly, the, the regulatory hurdles are formidable, but uh, they're surmountable. So when we initially approached uh, FDA back in 1999, I, I wasn't entirely optimistic. I would have given it maybe a 50% chance that we could get approval because it was at that point in the United States unprecedented. The, the whole landscape is totally different now, 13 years later. So we, you know, a number of institutions have done this. It's time-consuming. It's aggravating because you need to go through the Food and Drug Administration. You need to go through your local IRB. You need to go through DEA. All of those organizations kind of interact with one another, and so the approval process can drag out for um, months and months, if not years. But it's it's doable. Um, with respect to the Good Friday experiment, just very briefly, that was a 
remarkable study in divinity students. Uh, Walter Pankey, who was an advisee of Timothy Leary at the time, gave seminary students a high dose of psilocybin or niacin as a control. A number of them reported mystical-type experiences that had long-lasting meaning to them. And so uh, the work that we have been doing at Hopkins in one sense is a, is a very rigorous and systematic follow-up to, that, to those initial uh, observations from the Good Friday experiment. Are you each going to comment on regulatory hurdles? I'm, I'm frequently approached by people who tell me, they start off with the assumption like, oh, it must be impossible, the government must be harassing you and causing all sorts of problems and putting barriers in your way. That hasn't been the case, and I think that's because of the good work that was done in, in the, the earlier recent studies. Uh, we did not encounter undue you know, pushback from the FDA. We submitted and they came back with a very small handful of safety considerations. They wanted some more dialogue with us about have we considered this and that and do we address those changes and the, the approval process was, was smooth. Um, so I'd like to dispel any myth out there that the evil FDA is, is somehow trying to thwart our efforts. As long as you've got your ducks in a row in terms of, you know, are you conducting this study safely, and have you considered, you know, uh, how you're going to, to conduct this research responsibly, um, that hasn't been difficult. I understand that the DEA can be a little bit more, more difficult, but we're going into that phase right now, but we're really not anticipating a, a real long delay. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a brief anecdote about what it's like to, to deal with the DEA. My understanding is that they really care about the proper care and handling of the substance and want to make sure that there's no impropriety there. Dr. Grobe was in his office one day, and two DEA agents showed up in suits looking all very official and serious and said, we want to take a look at the psilocybin. You know, we want to weigh it out. And they went over to the research pharmacy in the hospital, and the research pharmacist opened the safe, and the psilocybin was gone. And an employee in the pharmacy had, had just uh, quit a week before, and everybody thought, oh, he absconded with the, the psilocybin. But the, they called the pharmacist. She came back in and, and looked, and there was a little shelf where the vial had rolled under a little shelf in the safe. They weighed it all out, and they said, thank you very much. That's all we needed to know. So as long as the researchers handle the, the substance properly. I'm not aware. Maybe some of the other teams have had more uh, you know, challenges that they face with the regulatory agencies, but we have not. So. Um, so, yeah, quickly about my experience with the, uh, yeah, the regulatory aspects. Um, with our project, there are about, like, seven different committees and boards that we, you know, from which we need approval to do this work, um, FDA, DEA, um, I guess I'll speak specifically about those because, um, yes, it's actually pretty accurately said, um, Alicia, that it's it's just part of the process and, it, you know, surprisingly is more about safety and um, sort of the rigor of the, of the research. If you really present, um, you know, the, your, your project, your proposal as one that is demonstrated um, to, you know, to be safe, um, you know, have safeguards to basically protect um, 
um, especially with IRBs, which are uh, review boards for the research uh, institutions, they are primarily concerned with um, human safety, human subject safety. So um, beyond, you know, really just needing to conduct this research and present it as one that is legitimate and... um, you know, uh, circumspect uh, that um, is kind of um, it's more just the regular bureaucratic hassle that we've had to deal with. Um, sorry, do you want to say yeah. Two other points to consider that, that need to be attended to before you can launch a study like this. Um, it's usually the principal investigator, uh, someone uh, leadership on the team, needs to have a, a license to work specifically with Schedule One substances. Um, you need to have that in place. And also sometimes, uh, you know, uh, procuring the substance that's manufactured to a standard that's acceptable uh, to the regulatory agencies can be a challenge. I know there's some studies that are that could potentially launch in Europe, but they're having difficulty getting the, the research drug um, manufactured to the level of purity required. So I'll just throw those out there. Okay, unfortunately, we only have time for one more question, but uh, <laughs> the middle has been neglected here, so we've, uh, we've chosen this, but um, <laughs> it's your birthday. <laughs> All right, two more questions. Um, you will be right back. But uh, just to mention, um, Dr. Roland Griffith will be giving his talk in about another hour, so you'll have more opportunities to conversate with him, and then Dr. Danforth will be speaking at 9 p.m. tonight. Hello. It's my birthday. I'm really excited to speak to all of you. I want to know, what's your opinion with the DSM-5 that's coming out and the fact that the, the National Institute of Health has taken away their approval of it and the APA as well that they don't want to there's too much disorders being signaled out, too many people are falling into symptoms, where where do you think research will go if the AP, the DSM 5, which is basically, you know the Bible to everything is getting, their approval is just taking away, that's something that's been, you know, established for the last 40 years, and now we're taking away its power and the research funding Okay, I'll, st- I'll start. Um, it, it, as a result of doing the dissertation re- research, I sort of got pulled into the controversy about the changes in DSM. They're so new. It was just published in May of this year, and so the dust really hasn't settled yet. But there's been enormous controversy amongst the broader autistic community because there are different factions that are very much in favor of collapsing. For those of you who don't know, the distinction of Asperger's, high function, all these levels of of autism have been collapsed into one diagnosis of uh, autistic uh, spectrum disorder. And some people are very much in favor of that change and some people are very much opposed. So that's not really a consideration for the research that we're doing because we'll do an assessment if someone qualifies as autistic um, by a third-party assessor, you know, they'll meet criteria. So it isn't really affecting us directly at this time, but Roland, you're probably more qualified to speak to how this might affect funding or... Happy birthday. Let's see, I don't have a strong opinion about this. I know that uh, uh, in terms of billing charges, they're using the WHO 
uh, nomenclature. But I, you know, functionally, I don't think that changes anything. Uh, you know, DSM has always been, and these diagnostic frameworks have always been part of a uh, partly scientific, partly political process. I was actually very involved in uh, DSM-5 with respect to caffeine. Uh, that's an area that I've actually done an awful lot more research with than uh, psychedelics. And uh, there was huge debate about whether caffeine withdrawal should be recognized as a disorder. I mean, it's, it's a real phenomenon that occurs, but there are kind of these political concerns that get raised about whether we're going to overdiagnose uh, the American public. But, you know, I don't think functionally it's going to make any difference in terms of the way mental health and... Uh, and uh, and drug research proceeds. At least that's that's my understanding currently. Hi, um, I'm interested in the mind-body-spirit relationship, and um, I'm curious with the the terminal uh, patients that you studied with regards to the psilocybin. Um, was there any trends uh, when these patients would have these experiences um, actually affecting their lifespan? And, and having these sort of uh, mystical experiences, did that extend their lives or have any, if you could just discuss the impact on them, on the patients? So our, our study is not uh, designed and, and we haven't hypothesized uh, impact of that sort. It's, a, it's an interesting question, but I, I think it would be um, un- unsettling to uh, propose that as a, as a primary outcome measure. I think the value of these experiences in terms of the palliative care and quality of life that people lead after the experience is more than enough to, to justify them. But you're right, it's an interesting question. There are kind of anecdotes along that line. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I could share anecdotes, but that's all they are is anecdotes. And, I'm in the business of science, so I'm, I, you know, I'd prefer not to. Yeah, yeah. We had to be very careful when we were recruiting for our psilocybin-assisted therapy study for advanced cancer anxiety. Um, I had to listen very cl- carefully to listen to hear if prospective participants were looking for a miracle cure, and frequently I had to s- state explicitly. This is not a study looking at the potential of psilocybin to extend lifespan. It was. I had to be very clear. This is for anxiety, quality of life, um, and I would echo what Roland said that there's anecdotal, you know, accounts that popped up, but there's nothing that can really be concluded from that. So, but um, some people were hoping that psilocybin would miraculously rid them of cancer, and that was kind of a screening criteria to make sure that we didn't enroll anyone that had unrealistic expectations. Okay, well, thank you very much to our researchers. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, uh, I'm glad that you're still with me. Even though uh, both Dr. Griffith's talk and uh, Dr. Danforth's talk were podcast by me a while back, I thought that there was uh, enough new information in the recording of this panel discussion that it was worth our time to listen to it. 
And if you want to uh, listen to Dr. Griffith's 6 p.m. Planque Norte talk, you can listen to my podcast number 385. And Dr. Danforth's 9 p.m. talk, that was uh, at least advertised as 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. Uh, well, that talk is in my podcast number 392, which also includes my phone conversation with uh, Alicia and uh, Dr. Grobe about the current status of their new study investigating uh, potential therapeutic uses of MDMA. And I want to remind you just one more time that the panel discussion we just listened to took place in August of 2013, almost a year ago. So uh, that number 392 podcast gives you a complete update on uh, the status of that uh, study with the MDMA and the autistic community. Now, in one of my uh, next podcasts, I hope to be able to give you the lineup of speakers for this year's Palenque Norte Lectures, which, of course, will take place at Burning Man beginning on August 25th of this year. Which, uh, I guess I should say, for those who come across this podcast in some distant future, this year is 2014, uh, at least by the calendar that I'm currently using. And like more than 7 billion other people who are walking this planet right now, I'm not going to be able to uh, make it to Burning Man myself this year. But for our fellow saloners who are able to make it, I hope that you'll stop by Camp Soft Landing and uh, sit in on one or two of the Planque Norte lectures that are hosted in that wonderful camp. Who knows, you may even meet your next best friend there. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>